This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Stock up and, and then have a seat, and we're going to start in five minutes. Okay? Thank you.
Professor Cherry requested that I raise the microphone. So it's not. Okay, well, you're all very welcome here. Um, we're here to celebrate Jim and Kathy Murphy's generous donation of over 300 signed first edition Irish poetry books, and really just to um, uh, celebrate, and, and that's symbolic of Jim and Kathy's contributions to Irish studies over the years. Uh, I'd like to start by making some introductions first. Many of you um, are probably thinking, we'll start with yourself. Who are you? <laughs> You're not that guy with beard I saw last year. My name is Craig Bailey. I am a faculty member in the Department of History here at Villanova, uh, where I teach Irish history, amongst other things. And I'm the interim director of Irish studies, while uh, Joseph Lennon uh, is on sabbatical in Italy. <laughs> poor, poor Joseph, stuck in Italy. But apparently that's where you have to go if you really, really want to write and research about Ireland. <laughs> I'm joined in Irish studies this year by Siobhan Murray, uh, who just provided us with the accordion music. Uh, there and also I should also mention a guitarist Darren Kelly and uh, and also Tom Cahill uh, played for us so just a, a round of applause for that. <laughs> Siobhan uh, can be seen playing in various sessions around Philadelphia if you go looking for her uh, and I should probably also mention that she's our Fulbright uh, language teaching scholar for this year uh, and she's teaching two sessions of Irish language this semester and two, yeah, and two next year. I'd also like to introduce, uh, for those of you who may not know her yet, Mary Mullen, who has joined the English department this year. Uh, Mary Mullen's right here. There she is. Mary, Mary studies 19th century English and Irish writing. Um, her current book project focuses on anachronisms, institutions in 19th century English and Irish realism. Concentrating on Irish writing by Mariah Edgeworth, William Carleton, Charles Kippam, and George Moore. Her articles have appeared in Victorian poetry, Victoriographies, I like that, 18th century fiction, and cultural studies. She comes to us from Texas Tech, and next semester she's teaching the sophomore seminar in English uh, on coming of age Ireland. Right? Very good. I'd also like to announce, well, it's already been announced, but I'm going to announce it again. The occupant of this spring of the Heimbold Endowed Chair for Irish Studies. Yet another facet of Irish Studies we have to thank for. Um, Glenn Patterson. Glenn Patterson uh, comes to us from Belfast. Uh, he was educated there in the University of East Anglia, where he did his MA in Creative Writing. He is the author of nine novels and two works of, nine fic of nonfiction. His plays and stories have been broadcast on Radio 3 and Radio 4. And if, uh, essays and articles have appeared in The Guardian, The Observer, The Sunday Times, The Irish Times, and various other English and Irish papers. He has been a writer in residence at Queen's University Belfast and University College Cork, and a creative writing fellow at the University of East Anglia. He has presented many new, uh, television documentaries and arts review series for RTE, and he also co-wrote a film called Good Vibrations, which explores the troubles through the lens of Belfast's underground punk rock scene. <laughs> and we're hoping to screen that when he's here next semester. Um, so look out for it. Glenn's also going to be teaching two courses next semester, Belfast Narratives and a creative writing, writing course on screenwriting. There's still a couple spaces left for both of those. So students who are here, if you're interested, sign up. I, I would if I could. And 
what of Joseph Lennon, you ask, very briefly? He is on sabbatical in Italy, uh, and the truth is he's as diligent as ever. When we last spoke, he informed me he said, had sent off several journal articles to publishers, three, I think he said, and he's making headway on his research and writing on hunger, a project close to his heart. Joseph expressed to me on several occasions his regret at not being able to be here today. Um, and he even penned his own brief composition, which I'd like to read, and it's the only reading you're going to get out of me, and you're probably glad of that. So Joseph's letter. I'm on sabbatical this year in my wife's hometown in Italy, otherwise Marika and myself would be there to join you all today. Jim and Kathy Murphy have been stalwarts of the Irish Studies program for longer than almost any of us remember. They have been good friends, generous hosts, and vigorous supporters of all that we have done on campus and in Ireland. Their gift to the Irish Studies program and Falvey Library Special Collections is a testament to their largesse and our great fortune. Last week I was at a conference in Berlin and I met an Irish woman who saw Villanova University on my name tag and immediately asked me about Jim and Kathy Murphy. <laughs> this happens to me so frequently that it feels like I'm related to them, which I must be in some sense. Jim's only request to me when he retired and I became director of the program was that I consider the great Irish poet Moya Cannon as the 2011 Heimboldt Chair of Irish Studies. We could not have found a better chair Jim's choices have been uncannily unerring, as this collection demonstrates. Jim not only, not only founded Irish Studies here, he helped find, found Irish Studies as an area of study. He is a beloved teacher, leader, mentor, father, grandfather, and husband. No one knows this more than Kathy, to whom he is devoted. We are grateful to know them now, and students and scholars will be grateful for their contributions for generations. Thanks to them and to all for making this event. <laughs> Jim's going to come up in a few minutes uh, to say a few words about the collection, um, and I think we might be able to persuade him to do a reading. Uh, and as Joseph's letter has said it all, I don't want to, to repeat it, but I'm, on, I'm also at a personal reflection <laughs> that I, I'm, not, I would, I'm not sure I'd have a job here if it wasn't for, for Jim Murphy. As I understand it, the history department was convinced to pursue a higher in Irish history, in part because of Jim's rather consistent suggestions that Villanova could use a full-time faculty member to teach Irish history regularly. So I thank Jim for that, and he works in mysterious ways. And finally, I would like to introduce Moya Cannon. Moya Cannon, oh, wait, wait. Moya Cannon comes to us from Donegal. I cannot tell you how happy I was to learn that she studied history and politics at the University of College Dublin and International Relations at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. Her first collection, Orr, won the inaugural uh, Brendan Behan Award, and in 2001 she was the recipient of the Lawrence O'Shaughnessy Award at the University of St. Thomas, Minnesota. A number, number of her poems have been set to music, and she has worked with traditional Irish musicians, both in the context of performance and of translating Gaelic songs. Um, Moya comes to us today from Dublin, via London, via Buenos Aires, via Uruguay, via Chile, via Boston, where she'll return tomorrow, and from there back to Dublin. And I forgot a Latin American country. 
All this leads me to conclude that the title of her recently published collection might have well have been called Moya Canyon, Moya Canyon Lives. And I think it's a nice example of the places that writing can take you. But the title of the work is not Moya Canyon Lives, but Keats Lives. And many of the poems were written or influenced by Moya's time at Villanova when she held the Heimlich chair. So please join me in welcoming Moya on her triumphant return. Unprecedented and probably won't be repeated, but <laughs> I usually come straight from Dublin. <laughs> um, I just can't tell you what an honour it is to be here today um, as Cathy and Jim make this wonderfully generous bequest. Um, uh, Joseph Lennon has said it more eloquently than any of the rest of us could say just um, how important people like Jim Murphy has, have been and his friend Charlie Fanning. Those, that first generation, or almost first generation, of people who put Irish studies on the map. And um, literature doesn't belong to any ethnic group, of course, or any national group. It's for sharing. Great literature belongs to the world, and it is meant to do that. But they certainly, um, as I say, did, did a huge amount. I remember hearing our present president years ago saying at some, at something or other, he may have been quoting or it may have been original, but he said, you're never truly free while somebody else is telling your story. You're only free when you tell your own story. And I think that for the Irish community and for the, probably for the Irish American community as well, having the um, Irish, having the, the whole discipline of Irish studies ha has been immensely important. And as I said, it's people like Jim have been in the absolute forefront of um, creating creating the whole area of study. Uh, I'd also, as I say, they're also, they're great friends. They're great friends to literature. They're, um, they're great friends to, to me and to so many, many other people. I can understand why Joseph Lennon is being intercepted at every uh, conference. Um, it was a mention of what great hosts they were. I believe over in the case here, you can see Derek Mann sort of praising uh, praising Cathy's soup, so it uh, doesn't, doesn't come much better than it's that. It's the only praise I ever got. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. So anyway, I'm going to read a number of um, poems. Uh, I think I'm just going to really indulge myself and start with an old favourite. Um, I say that, you know, enchantment ultimately is one of the one of the necessary qualities of poetry, so I'm going to start with one of the most loved of and well-known of Yeats's poems, The Song of Wandering Angus, and I, I read this for Cathy. I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand, and hooked a berry to a thread, and when white moths were on the wing, and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream, and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair, who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone, and kiss her lips, and take her hands, and walk among long dappled grass, 
and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. It was a great privilege and pleasure for me to be here as Heimbold, um, as Heimbold Chair a number of years ago, and I'm going to read a poem by previous Heimbold Chair, Michael Cody, which talks a little bit about the Irish-American experience. His father worked in the States as a young man, then returned to Ireland. So then Michael came here you know, later seeking his American roots, as opposed to people seeking their Irish roots. There's more to that, you know, than used to be. It's called Assembling the Parts. It's a, it's a, a very moving poem, I think, one of his central poems. Standing in sunshine by Highway 84, I'm photographing a factory which is no longer there. Looking for my father by an assembly line, which has halted and vanished into air. Catching the sepia ghost of a young tubercular Irishman who's left a rooming house at 6 a.m. in a winter time during the Depression, when my mother is still a girl, playing precocious violin, a miraculous medal under her blouse in Protestant oratorios in Waterford. A pallid face in the crowd in a dark winter time. He's coughing in the cold, assembling typewriters in Hartford, Connecticut, waiting for blood on his pillow to send him home, where he'll meet her one ordinary night with a band playing solitude in the Forester's Hall. Fifty years on, he's nine September's dead, and a tourist in sunshine by Highway 84 is photographing a factory which is no longer there, assembling the parts of the mundane mystery the common enigma of journeys and unscheduled destinations, the lost intersections of person and place and time, uniquely fathering every man out of the random dark. Oh, these are poems from Jim's collection, which uh, I was saying, you know, literature, I say, great, great literature belongs to everyone, but. Uh, as I say, it's a remarkably generous gesture to, to uh, donate this beautiful collection. I had 20 minutes to look through it up there. It's, it really is wonderful. It's a treasure. Um, Derek Mann, also the visitor to um, Villanova. And a, really, yeah, a very short poem, but one which I think is an absolute gem. One of my favourite of his. Thinking of Inishir in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A dream of limestone and sea light where gulls have placed their perfect prints. Reflection in that final sky shames vision into simple sight, into pure sense experience. Atlantic leagues away tonight, conceived beyond such innocence, I clutch the memory still, and I have measured everything with it since. And, uh, Nolan Yagona, also a Heimbaut chair, and again a very short poem of hers in, in Irish and English. I can't get her Kerry, her Kerry uh, Irish, maybe we should get Siobhan to get a southern blast on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Donegal Irish is fine too. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan Yagona, Kesh na Tan. I'll read it in Irish and then in English. In, and the English is in Michael Hartnett's wonderful, or sorry, in Paul Muldoon's wonderful translation. Curran Mawokas er snow a Margin Tangan, Fimer Lugha Nina Nagliwan, a Vel Fitcha Fuche, 
The jilliger fellestrum is bitumen is pick, be kimmel chillin a horn. In shinne lagushi samask na nyalka, is quiggle na man she, the tave na horn. Fechent, nyadrish, kadorhu and shruhe, fechent, dalawisha, and vorhi nien erin. The language issue, and it's the Irish language obviously she's talking about, and her hopes for it. I place my hope on the water in this little boat of the language, the way a body might put an infant in a basket of intertwined iris leaves, its underside proofed with bitumen and pitch, then set the whole thing down amidst the sedge and bulrushes by the edge of a river, only to have it borne hither and thither, not knowing where it might end up, in the lap, perhaps, of some pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to read a few poems of my own. I think I'll start with Philadelphia poems. I was finishing another book while I was here, and then this, these are, are poems which came um, all of them, gifts in different ways. I started this one with really the Irish for a poem is, is Don. Which means, uh, which is uh, related to the Latin donatus, gift, and uh, this was definitely a gift to me, given to me by a wonderful man whom I met on a train, called Keats lives on the Amtrak. <laughs> he does, he does, he does. Today, on the clunking, hissing silver train between Philly and New York, the African American conductor squeezed himself into the dining car seat opposite genially excused himself, and when I responded, asked why my novel was full of page markers. You've it all broken up. And I said I was teaching it. He leaned forward, smiled, and said, I'm going to get a t-shirt with Keats lives on it. This time of year, he gestured towards a window as trees were blurring into bud. When everything starts coming green again, I always think of him. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us. I told him it was a Dublin taxi driver who first told me that Keats claimed his only certainties were the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of imagination. He took a ballpoint from the pocket of his uniform jacket wrote down the quote, asked where it came from, as I had done, two decades earlier in the back of a taxi, as hundreds had since the young, sick apothecary penned it to his friend. That is a bombshell, he said. I'm going to give that to my little girl tonight, O light-winged dryad. The intercom announced, next stop Trenton, and the steel wheels began their loud, long scream. He hauled himself up out of the seat, smiled again, and drawing a line across his chest with his thumb said, Keats lives. <laughs> At the end of the flight, from Dallas to Philadelphia, the flight attendant announced that we had the father and sisters of a fallen soldier on board, that we were to remain seated until they disembarked, that she had died honourably. There was a round of applause and another on landing, 
A middle-aged man in a beige jacket stood to take down his hand luggage. A carrier bag with the corner of a folded starry flag poking out. And two young women in jeans rose from separate seats further down the plain. And we heard the sound of grief grinding three separate tunnels through their days. Snow day. I think I'll read this for, uh, for, um, for Jim Murphy's grandchildren, because I'd say they like snow days, do you? <laughs> snow, like manna, fell through the night. By my closed window, the cypress's fingers strain under mounds of white. Deep deer tracks pass the front door, halt at the edge, start again much deeper at the other side. Snow fell and fell through the night, feeding our need for silence, for midwinter light, for believing that all can be cleansed, made right. A wonderful lady called Cathy brought me uh, to a lovely nature reserve near here for some bird watchers and they were banding birds. She said, you'd be interested in this, because I'm very interested in migrations. And uh, yeah, I was very interested mm -hmm. and there was, uh, there was somebody else who likes snow days. And uh, anyway, this, is, this lady uh, spoke about uh, one particular little bird and I couldn't get over her courage, I think, of all the all the mothers and all their, their, uh, their courage, really. Flycatcher. Last month, Doris, the bird bander, told us about a one-legged bird, a flycatcher, who traced the spine of the Appalachians year after year and flew south, balancing her tiny, tattered body down through Mexico, all the way to South America and back to the same Philadelphia hedgerow to draw breath among catbirds and orioles, to be caught in the same birder's net, to raise brood after brood, and then to balance on a twig on her single fettered leg, to feed on passing insects, to store fat for her next odyssey. Life can be so rough, yet we can't get enough of it. <laughs> It's near, nearly time for a couple of Irish poems. Um, I spend a, as much time as I can, which isn't enough, uh, on the sides of hills. I think uh, I met a man here from Donegal, and uh, we established that we, we might be related. From my name, he sort of figured out where, what part of Donegal I must come from. It's not surprising, actually. I think my family have been uh, probably um, sheep farmers for more generations than, than, than count. Before we were deposed in the 11th century by the O'Donnells from the chief bishop. <laughs> For those of you who don't need to know, you know, letter Kenny means the hillside of the O'Connell. We had our day. Anyway, I think it's because of this that I, like, the, the generations of sheep farm that I like to spend so, many, so much time on mountains. Winter view from Binvricorn. In the mountain top stillness, the bog is heather crusted iron. A high hidden mountain pond is frozen into zinc riffles. We have tramped across a plateau of frost smashed quartzite to the summit cairn. Far below, in February light, lakes, bogs, 
sea inlets, the myriad lives being lived in them, the lives of humans and of trout, of stone chats and sea sedges, fan out a palette of hammered silver, grey and silver. And a sea poem. Eavesdropping. I don't know how many people realise that um, that uh, barnacles and limpets they talk to one another, they whisper. I hadn't realised it until I put my head down amongst them one day, and they made a fierce <laughs> racket. So this is called eavesdropping. Late at low tide, one June evening, at the tip of a green promontory that brimmed with lark song and plover cry. On a slab of damp granite, encrusted with limpets and barnacles, I lay down, laid my head down in that rough company, and heard the whispers of a million barnacles, grumbling of a hundred limpets, and behind them the shushing of the world's one gold-struck mercury sea. I went for a walk with a friend a few years ago in the glens of Antrim. It was a beautiful, beautiful September day. And we met an elderly man, and he told us he was 80, and we were chatting away, and a very gentle day and a gentle conversation. And then the conversation took another turn, which kind of shocked us. So this is Antrim conversation. There's a, a little epigraph from Simone Weil. She says, pain and suffering are a kind of false currency passed from hand to hand until they meet someone who receives them but does not pass them on. So Antrim conversation. Chalk is stained brown near the waterfall. It crumbles away easily as flint nodules are prized free. The flint itself is poised to split into slivers, a suggestion of blades, a memory of the trade this sharp wealth engendered. A small, tidy man who paused on his stick to talk to us in the lane on this Sunday of rose hips and blackberries had a voice as soft as chalk. He spoke first of weather and houses and sheep, of a life working to put wee shoes on wee feet. And we talked on and on in September sunshine until nodules of hurt washed out in the stream of his words. He spoke of being shaken awake as a child by uniformed men with guns, of his own young son being beaten up, of prison, of not knuckling under, and then of his satisfaction on hearing a man's head had been blown off in a neighboring town. History's hard cart rattled on as flint nodules shattered into narrow weapons. We wondered dumb what shift of bed frock what metamorphosis might heal such wounded, wounding ground? What do we know of the chalk, the flint of other souls, or of our own? Or what might break in us if history's weight pressed heavily down? How do we know that we could hold the pain and not pass on the false and brutal coin? W.B. Yeats had a 
a younger brother who was much more fun than he was. <laughs> Actually, WB Yeats had a great sense of humour. He doesn't get half enough credit for it. But his younger brother, Jack, who was a wonderful painter, uh, was uh, full of fun, as we say. He, um, he, spent his he had a much happier childhood, of course. He spent a lot of it with his parents in Sligo, his, his grandparents, excuse me, and then went back to London at the age of 16 to attend art college. And he said he, he arrived in, we um, were talking earlier about images, that, you know, the, your writing comes out of the images that are stored, stored in your head from earliest childhood. But he said he arrived in, in uh, Sligo with his head full of images, of, uh, and there are two kinds, of sailors and of horses. And he was crazy about um, cowboys. And when he landed in London, he was in luck because the Buffalo Bill Cody show had just landed and was right across the road from him. And because it caused so much noise, all the residents got free passes to it. And uh, hardly anybody else went, but he went every single night. And he painted horses all his life. So this is about a painting, uh, The Singing Horseman, which he did when he was very elderly. And it's about a, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. You can Google it, Singing Horseman by Jack Yates. It is so gorgeous. It's about this young man riding home barebacked on this beautiful, beautiful horse. And, um, it's, and he's singing. And it just reminds you about how important song is. Uh, it's important all your life. But I was just saying earlier, I think between 16 and 22 or something, it, it, it's your map of the world. It was mine anyway. The white horse, with its golden chest and head, is from another world, is kin to wide-winged Pegasus, or to the white horse that carried Ushin off, or to the black mare of Fanid who saved her rider from a demon. But this golden-headed rider is one of us, a young man with a torn red sleeve, jogging home bareback from the races on a breezy summer's evening in Sligo, riding near the rough blue shore, heading north towards Strida, playing a whistle or singing. And the painter who paints them both is an old man who remembers a hundred races, a hundred summer's evenings. But how are we who do not believe in magic steeds to understand this, except to remember the years between 15 and 22, when our spirits strained as a moth's wings strain inside its brown spun prison, when a song, pressed into black vinyl by some Dylan seeking his direction home, or sung by an acquaintance at a party, giving voice to some long-dead passion, released our crumpled spirits, transported us across skies and oceans, and our hands, our heads, were golden. And Jack wrote WB when he was in the last year of WB's life, you know, and he was saying, as many of you know, their mother was called Susan Pollocksfen. And uh, Jack said, you know, I often wondered where the Pollocksfens came from. I mean, they came from Cornwall, but where did they come from beyond, before that? He said, our uncle said they came from the, the Mediterranean somewhere, but he said, I began to think about it, and in a minute I had it, he said, Castor and Pollux, the heavenly twins, he said. <laughs> he said and uh, he said, we're, it was obvious we were defend, de descended from, um, from Helen's brother, and, uh, or from Helen's, yeah. And so he said, having, having uh, Helen as a great, 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 great grand aunt, and Zeus as a great, 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 great grandfather, that should be good enough for any man. <laughs> I'm going to 
finish with some wonderful tunes here at the beginning, and this is called Between the Jigs and the Reels. A lovely, lovely accordion player, Dr. Siobhan. Um, there's a reference here to a great accordion player called Joe Cooley. He spent a lot of time in the States, and he was interviewed near his, uh, near his death, and uh, he, uh, he was making rather extravagant claims. He said, uh, he said mm, I was in nearly every city in the States, he said, and everyone there likes Irish music, he said. Um, all the black people like it. You know? He said, it's the only music that brings people to their senses. <laughs> I, think, I, think, uh, I think all music brings us to our senses. <coughs> this is between the jigs and the reeds. And I'll finish with this. And thank you very much for having me here. I'm deeply honoured. And thank you all for listening. And congratulate her. As I say, it's uh, just, I can't think how, how, how generous I say, Jim and Cathy are. I've seen some of those books up there. They are jewels. So I would recommend all the students to go up and look at them. Between a jig and a reel, what is there? Only one beat escaped from a rib cage. Tunes are migratory and fly from heart to heart, intimating that there's a pattern to life's pulls and draws. Because what matters to us most can seldom be told in words, the heart's moods are better charted in its own language. The rhythm of Cooley's accordion which could open the heart of stone, John Doherty's dark reels, and the tune that the sea taught him, the high parts of the road, and the underworlds, which only music and love can brave, to bring us back to our senses and on beyond. Thank you. I think I have to say something at this point. <laughs> it's a happy occasion for Kath and I. Um, Irish studies is about a year younger than our marriage, so Kath's been with me from the beginning. And as uh, the letter from Derek Mahan over there suggests, um, her soup was just the beginning of it. <laughs> uh, uh, and a lot of the books that are there's only a few in the case here. Most of them are upstairs, and I don't even know if they're catalogued yet. But um, the, uh, a lot of those books were gifts to us, you know. And so it seemed the appropriate thing to do was to make them gifts back. Uh, and what better place than where I had spent my whole professional life and much of my academic love in um, Irish studies, which was itself a reaching back my own parents and who knows what beyond that I didn't especially come from a literary family my dad being a hostess cupcake delivery man <laughs> but he could recite a few poems when he had a few pops and, uh, <laughs> so maybe that's where it came from um, so it seemed appropriate and it occurred to me too that uh, um, this is the second gift Kath and I have given to Villanova University. I was telling my <coughs> students about this a few classes back. But about 15 years ago, we donated a red oak tree. Rather mm -hmm. unusual thing to donate, I guess. <laughs> more unusual was the fact that we won it in a raffle. <laughs> some, some people win Caribbean cruises, you know. <laughs> we, we, we get a red oak tree. And 
wasn't quite sure what to do with this red oak tree. It came from a local nursery, and they told me it would live to be 150 years old and grow to be maybe 60, 70 feet high and also enormous width. Whew. Now at the time, Villanova was becoming an arboretum. So I contacted the grounds people. We have one in the back there, Huey from Dublin. And they were thrilled with the idea that they would get this red oak tree. I'm happy to say it survived the cut of the recent construction, which is tearing it kind of <laughs> apart. And it sits for flourishing over by Alumni Hall. And I refer to it as Murphy's Oak. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering what's the connection between these two gifts. And then it occurred to me by way of what Seamus Heaney emphasizes quite a bit that the, the name in Irish, Moya, correct me, Dor, how do you pronounce it? Dor. Is, is the origin of the name of Derry, which is the home place of uh, Seamus Heaney and others. Um, but also, if you read the ancient literature, the Oak Grove was the place where the Druids gathered. So it had that association with myth and poetry and spirituality, and so I thought, but there is a connection between these two gifts, each kind of um, living, you know, in its own way. A collection of books and a tree that's blooming over there in the grotto has um, our name on it. So you could, I think it does, I haven't checked lately. Is the name still on there, you? Last time I looked. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, a number of years ago, and the Villanovan was published on Valentine's Day and they were doing um, little personals, you know? Mm. Dear Mary, I love you, and dear this, and one of the entries was, I can't get it exactly right, but it was something like that. Uh, dear Mary, I'll never forget our first kiss under Murphy's Oak. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, we've entered the realm of folklore now. <laughs> so, but it lives on. It lives on, <laughs> it lives on, yeah. Um, and uh, Craig said, I do a reading. I said, what better thing to read than a poem I often read at the beginning of classes? And some of you know it, and many of you love it. It's a Seamus Heaney early poem called Digging, um, which also has an association with the tree. <laughs> also has an association with multiple generations. And we have a couple of generations here in the front. And uh, somewhere around here, I guess, is Mary Grace. Thea? Another granddaughter. Mary Grace, who couldn't be here, but... She is here? I don't no. think she is. Oh, anyway, Mary Grace informed me just yesterday that she was submitting an essay to a contest. She's in sixth grade, um, based on women in the Easter Rising. <laughs> <That's really>. oh. <laughs> sixth grade, you know. <laughs> she might be careful then. She might grow up to be a revolutionary. <laughs> It'd be hard to handle when she's a teenager. <laughs> Um, so well, that's multi-generational digging, you know, digging, and when you dig, you try to get to the bottom of things, so you can, I don't want you to go out and dig up my tree, <laughs> but the students who are here, you're invited to go and dig in these, this whole place, you look around, and some people are here for our occasion, but the whole library is filled with students digging, mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to get to the bottom of things, they're trying to see how things start, um, it's a noble occupation. <laughs> Um, this is a Seamus Heaney's poem, Digging. 
Also a reminder, one poem you read there, Moya, that Antrim conversation of how um, for lots of people, even in the world we know just from watching CNN, in the world today, guns fit very easily in people's hands. And it's much better when pens fit in their hands. Um, between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean, rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till the straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I have no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. So that's in that spirit that the gift is made, that students and others can go digging in the rich world, which is Irish, writing Irish poetry in particular. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank Kath and ask a round of applause for Kath for her. Among other things, making our house always a warm and welcoming place for Irish writers on their journeyings. <laughs> Irish writers are born to journey. So, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, I thought that was a, a wonderful um, gathering of different groups, students and faculty and staff and members of the public um, in different generations, as Jim said. Um, I want to just, that is the end of our show. But I just, I, I, and I'm not going to try to add anything to that. That was, that was just fantastic. And Moya's, Moya's readings were just Wonderful. I wanted to say, um, in addition to thanking Jim and Kathy for this wonderful gift, and Moya for reading, and Siobhan uh, and, and um, for playing, uh, to thank uh, Fowley Library for letting us host us and make so much noise, especially in the beginning in, in their library. I wouldn't call it noise. I meant music. I mean, uh, uh, but, you know, a library. Uh, it was, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to thank Favi and, and also to, to thank Michael Foyt for all of his help 
with getting this organized. Um, and uh, Gina Duffy and Laura Matthews for all their help. Um, and to uh, uh, thank um, Stephen Gorick and Planned Giving for organizing some things. Erica Nino and Anna Fitzpatrick for their help. Um, and Joyce Harden, wherever Joyce Harden there she is. Thank you. Okay. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful evening and safe travels. Thank okay. you.